so if you found your notes, uh, we've made it to Acts chapter 6, and uh, it's a short chapter. There's only 15 verses, but as usual, it is uh, packed uh, with meaning and um, lessons uh, for us today. And I pray that uh, God would bless us as we read His Word. Amen? So in Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1, uh, it sets up the stage for uh, something that's um, interesting, I think, that, and maybe that we kind of overlook a little bit uh, about this early group of believers it says in verse 1, it says, And in those days when the taught ones, the disciples, uh, were increasing, uh, there arose a grumbling against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. We'll get to that in a second. Because their widows were overlooked in the daily serving. So what this is telling us here is that this early group of believers uh, <clears throat> had... Uh, a mixed crowd, and you have basically Jews or these Hebrews, these uh, Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers, they speak Hebrew. Then you have uh, in, uh, in the Scriptures version that we're using, it's using the word, which I really like, Hellenists. That's what they would call them, or those that were and this is, this is where it gets a little bit confusing if you say this word, Greeks, or those that were speaking Greek. It really wasn't that. <clears throat> These were uh, Jewish people, to a certain degree, that had adopted the Greek mindset and culture. So they were called the Hellenists. So they were Jews, but they had totally assimilated into the Greek culture. Uh, everything about it, dress, you know, everything. And they were called Hellenists. Uh, you know, this might be a really bad illustration, but, you know, we're all Americans pretty much, you know, in this country. And you have two groups, Republicans and Democrats, or conservatives and liberals. You know what I'm saying? So, um, and that's kind of the way they were looking at each other. But they were all Jewish, but they considered this one group Hellenists because you didn't stay really pure, if you will, in your lifestyle. And so that's us. And, you know, you guys are whatever. Now, in other words, these are not technically what you would call the Samaritans who had intermarried and everything and really didn't even know who was who. These were people that would be living there in Jerusalem or whatever, but they called them Hellenists. <clears throat> so it says that at the very beginning, you know, during this time, this early stage of these believers, <clears throat> an argument breaks out between these two groups. And the argument was that the, the Hellenist widows, the widows that were associated with this Hellenist group, they were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So remember in the last chapter or so about everybody uh, selling what they had and they would bring it to the apostles and they were using that money to supply whatever needs the community had, whether it was clothing or food or, or whatever. And it was largely food or food and clothing. 
And according to the book of James, he said, this is pure and undefiled religion that your father appreciates. It's to visit the widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself unstained from the world. Well, that's right out of the Torah. And this is exactly what they were doing. They were trying to take care of the widows, uh, especially the widows, because they didn't have social security. They didn't have any kind of uh, security net. Uh, That's why you always wanted to have a lot of boys in your family, that as the parents got older and maybe the dad dies off, the older sons and stuff would take care of the the mom and the, the, the elderly. That was your retirement plan. So it says that, you know, they, they were grumbling about this. So <clears throat> here's what's interesting. This is what I jotted down. Most of us have a tendency to think that the early body of believers were living in this perfect society, right? Because we, we just read, you know, they were all of one mind and one heart, and they're selling everything they have, and no one had any needs. Well, what we miss, it was messy, It was very messy. They were trying to figure this out, and they were not perfect. They're frail human beings just like us. Uh, I know some of you might be perfect, but I'm not. And so, I mean, it was was messy. Uh, It was anything but perfect and peaceful. It it really wasn't. Um, Here we say that there was this growing division and people were, in fact, showing some partiality in the daily distribution of the food and the resources. An argument breaks out. So there were people that were, uh, if you will, shortchanging some of the widows because they weren't part of their group. Uh, and there was this grumbling that breaks out. Um, well, <clears throat> jealousy and prejudice didn't dis- disappear with the belief in Yeshua. It's like that old saying, you know, it, it, you know, it doesn't take that long to get out of Egypt, but it takes a long time to get Egypt out of us. Um, so <clears throat> I'm not saying that Jesus can't change you overnight. He can. But haven't we all experienced that lingering sin disease and that old self rearing his ugly head, uh, just reminding you of who you really are, you know, and we are saved by grace, but we're actually a child of the king. Amen. And look, uh, people lost family ties. They lost jobs, public standing. They were kicked out of the synagogue, which meant they, they couldn't even do business. Uh, they even lost their lives because they believed in Yeshua. People were literally putting their lives on the line to embrace this new faith. Um, and so everybody's, um, everything was heightened. People's faith, tension, anxiety, rejoicing, fear, all these emotions are really heightened at this stage. Like we said, they're seeing miracles that are unprecedented there in Jerusalem. Thousands of people lining the streets, people getting saved left and right. And we're going to see even more that's just absolutely astounding in this chapter. But in the midst of all that, to add to that, all of that hurt that they were dealing with in losing so much, <clears throat> you have to add to it that there were other believers that were still struggling with their own prejudice. It, it's happening. 
As a matter of fact, the, the farther we get into the book of Acts, we're going to find out that Peter had a big problem with being prejudiced. That's why God had to send the Holy Spirit, had to give him a dream about going to Cornelius' house, uh, a Gentile, and he gives him the dream about the sheet with all the animals on it and stuff. Peter in that, we're, I don't want to get into it too much, but he adds, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Common meant not correct according to the rabbis. So he's saying, I've not only not eaten unclean animals, I don't even eat against the regulation of the rabbis, something that would become common. In other words, not correct. Uh, and Paul has to call him out publicly at one point. Peter had his, had his problems. <clears throat> uh, this, was, this was not planned out or whatever. It's just showing human weakness. You have to remember now, once again, we're reading what? A historical document that's just giving us all the ugly details of what went on. And so this is, <clears throat> this is their weakness, and it's brought to the apostles' attention and they properly handle it, which that's good news, right? We can learn from that. Let's look at what they said. In verse, 12, uh, verse 2 it says, The twelve summoned the group of the apostles or of the disciples, the taught ones, and he said, It's not pleasing or right for us to leave the Word of God and serve tables. I've all, as a minister, I've always liked that comment and thought it even a little bit humorous. Uh but it's actually right. What they were saying was, look, this isn't good for us to spend our time serving tables. We need to spend our time studying the Word of God and explaining the Word of God, right? And so that's what they tell everybody because they come to them with the complaint. So the apostles go, so you want us to worry about <clears throat> handing out food? Really? I mean, that's... Look, ha handle this. You know, it's, it's like saying, that, that's ridiculous. Uh, and almost like, you know, why are we even having this problem? We shouldn't be having this problem. It was a problem. So they said, look, it's not right for us to leave and neglect the Word of God so that we can serve tables and hand out food. And there you go. Therefore, brothers, seek out from among you seven men <clears throat> who are known to be filled with the, with the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we shall appoint for this duty. Let's stop here just for a second. So they say, look, <clears throat> we're not, I'm not serving food. That's pretty much what they say. They're like, I'm not going to spend my time worrying about that detail. Here's what you need to do. You guys go find seven people from among yourself, and they give three stipulations. <clears throat> but this is what's fascinating. The stipulations are, the first one is, well, <clears throat> the first one is contingent on the next two. Here's what it is. It says, they need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. But they, the third part of that is, they need to be known for that. In other words, not just popular. Their popularity should be based on the fact that they're, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom from God. This isn't a popularity vote. This is where you get the idea that <clears throat> these are the first elected deacons, if you will. 
which is fine, <clears throat> and I believe it's true. Uh, but the, the issue here is that these men need to be known for these two qualities. Those two qualities are what's supposed to make these men popular. Are you catching that? It's backward from what we typically do today. It's not the popular people that need to be trained in godliness. It's the godliness that should make the men popular. And I mean in faith culture, not just Christian, but faith culture, it's, that's upside down. We take the popular, the charismatic, and then try to teach them or whatever how to be godly. Some of the most God, Moses, probably the most godly person around, right? You know what the Bible describes him as? The most meek person on earth. He was very, very humble. There wasn't a prideful bone in his body. Uh, So it says, this is the type of people you're supposed to look for. Those are good qualities, right? And they find them. So it says, uh, this is what you're supposed to do. And it says, and then, then we'll appoint them for this duty. In other words, we will lay hands on them in front of everybody, and we're going to say, these are the men that are going to be in charge of this job. So in verse 4 it says, but we shall give ourselves continually to prayer and to serving the Word of God. Here's what we need to remember. These little details. They were not studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Romans. They, hadn't, they didn't have any of that yet. So what are they constantly studying? They're constantly studying the Old Testament, trying to understand everything that Jesus had been telling them and teaching them and how all this fits together. They're going back over all of the Old Testament, seeing and learning all this stuff. And I can imagine, you know, they've got the purple smoke experience. You know, they're like... Whoa, I didn't see that before, you know, in the Torah reading, you know, and they're just, it's blowing their mind, the stuff that they're learning and how Jesus, how Yeshua has been fulfilling all this stuff. So in verse five, it says, this word pleased the entire group. They all went, all right, that's great. And they chose these seven people. This is absolutely fascinating. They chose Stephanos or Stephen, Philip, Pilcuros, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. This is fascinating. So these are the first, if you will, deacons, right, in the early church. This, these are the first deacons. And Stephen, <clears throat> this whole story is about to start to revolve around Stephen, and especially the next chapter. Here's what's absolutely fascinating. All seven of these men... Those are Greek names. And what's even more interesting is that the last one, Nicolaus, it says, is a convert from Antioch. Stresses that point. What he's saying here is, these are not only possibly Jews with Greek names that are Hellenists, right? You've even got one in here that wasn't even Jewish. 
interesting. In the midst of all that, here's what you got to think. An argument breaks out in this group of believers. By this time, it's it's thousands of people. Uh, You know, Acts chapter 2, they had 3,000. And it's, and it's just constantly growing. You've had people lining the streets with their sick coming in from those outside towns we talked about last week. There's thousands of people involved in this fellowship to some degree. And this argument breaks out. And so what do they do? What would we American do? Americans do in the democratic style? Well... You, you need seven, that way you can outvote, right? You, can, you, you won't have a tie. You'll have four and three. And you should have a kind of a, a mix. You should have a representation from everybody, right? You know, you don't find that here. The people that were complaining were the Hellenists. Every, every single person they pick are basically from that side of town. They've all got Greek names. Fascinating, huh? So here's something that we can learn from that. Even when it's messy, which it can be, right? Being involved in any fellowship can get messy. So-and-so hurt my feelings or whatever, right? All, All that kind of stuff, which is what they're dealing with. And what happened was they go to the Apostles, they say, look, this is what's going on. They're like, we're not dealing with that, okay? You guys need to, y'all need to settle this. Here's what you need to go find these type of people. They don't even tell them who. They don't say, okay, you need to get three from this group and four from, they just say, go find seven people that are known for these qualities. There had to have been more than seven that were like this. I think it's fascinating that the seven they pick all have Greek names which says the Hebrew-speaking group, that some of them were uh, disrespecting, if you will, some of the Hellenist uh, Greek-minded widows are now saying, we're going to put you in charge. You see, that's how you diffuse any bad situation. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about glorifying God. And it's not about any of us having our rights. Does that make sense? And so these are the type of men that they pick out for the purpose of the daily distribution of foods. I believe that some of us would think if we were dealing with that situation, well, I don't know if I want them totally in charge because they might want to get revenge and they might want to shortchange our widows. We don't see any of that. They all, they're, they're excited. They say, okay, we got a plan. This is what we're going to do. The apostles gave us a plan. We're going to go forward with it. And then they pick seven men, all with Greek names, and put them in charge. I find that absolutely fascinating. Verse 6, it says that they put them before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. And then look what it says. And the word of God spread. You see, this this was a time 
when dissension could have divided the group and I think limited the very power of God working through them. There was a time when I pastored a church and uh, we decided on Wednesday night prayer meeting, you know, we used to call it Wednesday night prayer meeting. Anybody here remember that? And we decided we would show up and we would actually pray. We're going to spend the whole time praying and if we, if we have time to do something else, we'll do something else. But if it's going to be Wednesday night prayer meeting, we're going to show up and pray. It's fascinating. Sonia remembers it. Spirit of God really started moving. It was powerful. Almost scary powerful. No plan, no agenda. There was no plan, no agenda. We didn't plan out the types of prayers we would do. <laughs> you know, I went in there without preparing to teach anything. It got to the point to where we were filling up the sanctuary on Wednesday nights with people praying. Just praying. The spooky thing about all of it was, I mean, I'm always up front. We had the pews, you know, with the padded pews. Old time Baptist church, you know. I'm on my knees kneeling at that front pew, you know, and praying. And you could hear people in the back of the room wailing out of nowhere, just crying out to God. And... uh it was powerful. One of the deacons came up to me after about two or three months of this going on, and he said, you know, Pastor, all this praying is great, but we pay, we pay you to teach. I said, I'm always prepared to teach. I'll teach at the drop of a hat. I said, but we're going to show up, we're going to pray until it seems like nobody wants to pray anymore. I'm not saying it was his fault, but from that day, on, it started going back the other direction downhill until it stopped. There was one Sunday I was preaching and I, <clears throat> I'd, I'd kind of had it. <laughs> I was really frustrated. One, of the, one guy came up to me, longtime friend of mine, came up to me because they had started joining, coming to the church. He said, Pastor, you okay? And I said, oh, I'm fine. He goes, are you worried that we're not growing anymore? I said, no, I'm, I'm not worried that we're not growing anymore. I'm worried because I know why and I don't know how to turn it around. And he just looked at me and I said, look, this is what's going on. And unless everybody here really wants to pour out our lives before God, we're not going to see the power of God here. It's just going to be another church service. Uh, I think that's what was happening here. And there was an opportunity... <clears throat> for everybody to lay down their own desires and agendas and surrender over to the will of God and see the power of God work, or they could get into their bickering. And the Word of God says that He abhors division in the family. It's an abomination to Him. Uh, they didn't do that. <clears throat> they willingly, gladly said, we're going to pick seven Greek-speaking people. We're going to put them in charge. We're not going to be in charge. We're going to let them take care of it. And they took care of it. And it says, and the word of God spread. Uh, and it says, the number of the disciples increased greatly. So if we, in other words, this is like, 
It's the momentum is building instead of slowing down and going backward. We just read where there were thousands of people in the streets, right? Lining up their sick ones, people getting healed left and right. They, you know, Peter and John get dragged before the courts. All that stuff's going on. This other thing happens. And now it says that the disciples in Jerusalem, the number of disciples in Jerusalem grew greatly. And it ends with this, and a great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. Wow. You see how great it is when we as believers fellowship in unity and not division. We have to be united in wanting to serve God and surrender over our stuff, you know, to him. And then now we're going to see something fascinating that is tied to the very event going on inside the church. This is what I want you to see where the word of God is just fascinating. The the power of God, the uh, the omniscience of God, the all-knowing power of God weaving everything together so perfectly now we've got this issue about Stephen. In the, in the Scriptures version, he's, uh, they use the word Stephanos, which is probably more correct. But Stephen was filled with faith or belief and power, and he did great wonders and signs among the people. It's important now as we move forward for you to remember Stephen is not a Jewish, Hebrew-speaking He's not an Orthodox Jew. He's part of the Hellenist group. Where we are somewhat assuming that, but he has this Greek name, so it's safe to assume he's part of that. Hellen- he's at least whether he is, believes that and whether he has that mindset or not, or not. We don't know, but what we do know is his, what he the name that he has, which leads us a little bit into a little bit of his background, just by his name. Is that fair? So it's important to remember that about Stephen because of what's about to happen. So Stephen is filled with power, filled with faith. He does great wonders and signs among all the people. Watch this. But some of those of the so-called congregation or synagogue of the freedmen Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cachilia or Sicilia and Asia, they rose up disputing with Stephen. Do you understand what, before we move forward, you need to understand who's arguing and debating with Stephen. It says here that these are some from the (coughs) so-called, or what it was called, Synagogue of the freedmen. There's debate about what that really means, but most people understand this to be these were people that had probably been slaves or families of slaves. And Rome would do this from time to time when they would come in and they would conquer an area. They took everybody and they disrupted everything. So if you were a person that had slaves, not only would you get demoted, maybe they would take your property or whatever, they would take your slaves, take them away from you, and in some cases, free them. It's just part of the whole thing to 
to disrupt everything and shake things up so that everybody understands that Rome is in control. Does that make sense? And so some are speculating this congregation of the freedmen. Now, here's what you need to see. Where are they from? The Greek area. It's not from Israel. They're from Alexandria. <clears throat> These are Cyrene's, Sicily, uh, Asia. But these are in a synagogue of freedmen, and they're debating with Stephen. You following this? So these are, watch this, converts to rabbinical Judaism. These are Greek converts to rabbinical Judaism. Does that make, you, you following that? <clears throat> Stephen was picked, why? Stephen was one of the seven that was picked because his, he was known for his faith, his being filled with the Spirit of God, and wisdom. He wasn't picked because he was popular. He was picked because he was so sold out to God. To be one of these first deacons, it says that he goes out and he's performing signs and wonders among all the people. This is outside of the congregation. Now he's outside teaching. And these people from the synagogue of the freedmen come up and they're disputing with him and they're arguing with him. In verse 10 it says, but they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They couldn't stop him. In your notes, you might want to highlight a couple of things here. This is the first one. <clears throat> so first of all, they weren't able to stop him. Verse 11 says, then they instigated men to say, you might want to circle that or highlight it. They instigated men to say something. Who is this starting to sound like? The trial of Jesus. They instigated men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. The second thing you ought to circle is in verse 12. It says, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. So they whip up the crowd. They get some people to come and do false accusations against Stephen. And they entice or stir up all the people and the elders and the scribes, the religious leaders. So they come and they seize Stephen and they bring him to the council, meaning they bring him before the high priest and all the, this religious council. The third thing you need to circle is found in verse 13 where it says, and they set up false witnesses. So now they're setting up false witnesses, fake news. Seriously, I mean, this, what we're experiencing today is there's nothing new under the sun. We just found new ways to do it. So they set up false witnesses who said, watch this, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this set-apart place. That would be what? The temple, the holy place, the temple, and the Torah. 
Now they're going to say, we've heard him saying that this Yeshua of Nazareth shall overthrow this place and change the institutes which Moses delivered to us. Well, I've got to back up for a second. So <clears throat> these are these uh, freed slaves and converts to Judaism. Uh, they evidently once either were slaves or they're coming from families of slaves that maybe had been freed at some point. So we don't know for sure. We just know there's a bunch of men from this congregation that was a congregation called the Congregation of the Freedmen. <clears throat> and these converts are obviously very zealous for their newfound faith. Which is understandable. <clears throat> Whatever kind of faith they had before, we don't know. They came from all these other areas. <clears throat> They're in Asia and around Rome and Greece, that, just around in that area there. They're now in Israel in this congregation called the Congregation of Freedmen. <clears throat> and they've, whatever they had before, they have now decided that Judaism is the right way and they're con they have converted over to that as adults. What I mean is these people were not raised in a Jewish home and therefore simply adopted the teachings of their parents. We, we're gathering this even just from the name of this. It's a separate, separate synagogue. They're not saying they're part of the temple service and they're saying they're part of this other synagogue, like a, a sub-synagogue. Uh, and the reason for that would be, well, because they're not really, you know, Jewish, even though they've converted over to Judaism. <clears throat> and so they're very zealous for that faith. Wouldn't you be? If as an adult, you find out that what you thought you knew about the Bible wasn't totally correct, and then now you're finding out more about your Bible, don't you find yourself becoming zealous about that new knowledge about what you're learning about the very Word of God? And you're like, man, how come everybody doesn't know this? And you, know, you, you want everybody to understand you know, the full truths that you're learning from Scriptures? They're not on, that, that's not their, their concept is coming from some other religion, if they even had one, to realizing, oh, there really is a God, the creator of the universe. He adopted, he, he birthed the people of Israel. They, get, they got all that. They're understanding, okay, this is how you do it? Oh, okay. And they officially convert over to rabbinical Judaism with all the rules and all the trappings and all that stuff. And they become very zealous about it. Well, <clears throat> um, I think that's partly because they know they know real hardships. And now they're free to choose. And in their newfound freedom, they choose this rabbinical Judaism. Now someone comes along telling them, well, that's not totally correct. <laughs> right? And what do they do? They bow up. 
They bring out people to lie about them, all kinds of stuff. We'll get into that in a second. Why would they be so intent on destroying Stephen? Because it's challenging their new mindset. And they are, watch this, emotionally invested and physically invested. You have to understand, to convert over totally to Judaism, for the men, you have to go through circumcision, even as a man. People would die from that at times. From infection and you name it. So now you got grown men that are part of this synagogue that have obviously gone through this rite of circumcision. I mean, they're like, what? And now watch this. And it's Stephen, who is an Hellenist. You're a traitor. They can relate, is what I'm getting at. There's a personal investment. They have a personal, physical, emotional, spiritual investment in what they now believe. And so Stephen is coming up and he's doing these miracles and he's teaching this stuff about the resurrection and about Jesus. They can't even hear what he's saying because they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I'm settled. I, I, I got a routine. I, I got a system. It's, it, it's working. And now you're telling me I need to adjust? That's not happening. You see, when that happens... You can't hear. You can't use logic. You can't be, watch this, reasonable. So what happens when people start reacting and responding emotionally to actual truth? You don't really hear what's being said. You hear what you think you hear. And you actually heard, I mean, you heard it in your head, even though that's not what was being said. I want you to notice what they claim happened. They said that uh, Stephen is speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. I can tell you right now that's not the case. We'll get into it when we get into his actual sermon because they're actually going to make a tactical error and say, so is this true? (laughs) Don't you just love it when somebody says, I'll get into a conversation and it'll take a long time. And then Sonia goes, well, that took a long time. I said, well, they asked. <laughs> I, they asked me a question. I started telling them the answer. Uh, that's what's going to happen with Stephen and he's going to give them the answer. They're going to say, is this true? Uh, and we're going to see in his, in his testimony and his witness, there is no way he was speaking against Moses and there is no way he was speaking against God. What he was speaking against is rabbinical Judaism. So we know that that's not true, and it says, and they they stir up the elders and everything, and then watch this. They set up a false witness. You see, you have to do that. Oh, I know you heard him say this, right? And then you start slanting it. Maybe even what, what we call leading the witness in a court case. 
and try to put words in their mouth. I'm sure they didn't go up and say, you need to lie. They were up there. This is what he's saying. And you understand this is what this means, right? And they just keep going. It's kind of like the stuff you see in the news today. And you're like, I guess people have just lost their minds. Nobody can even hear what's really going on. Nobody can even hear what the words coming out of anybody's mouth. They twist everything. Well, this is what they're doing. And then watch what they, watch what they say, what they get these witnesses to say. In verse 13, it says, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words. I'm sorry, about uh, the, the, the temple and the Torah. We know that's not going to be true either. We're going to see that in a second. Uh, <clears throat> and it says, For this is what we, in other words, they, this is what he's doing. He's speaking blasphemous words against the temple and against the Torah. He's against the Torah, right? And then they explain why they know that's true. Now they're going to give the quote. Now they're going to give the basis of what they're saying that Stephen is teaching. We've heard him say that this Yeshua of Nazareth, now they're going to pinpoint it down. It's about Jesus. The issue is over Jesus, Yeshua, and what he said that this Yeshua shall overthrow this place. He's going to overthrow the temple. And he's going to change the institutes which Moses delivered unto us. You know what's amazing? When I say this, you're going to think I've lost my mind. That idea is pretty much Orthodox Christianity. We tried so hard to watch the TV series about Jesus called AD. Tried so hard to watch it. I tried so hard. And in that whole thing, it was just the temple's done and against the temple and it's not the temple. And you know, now it's this new thing to church and it's not the temple. It's not the temple service. It's the, and I'm going, that was never the issue. Um, <clears throat> So they're saying that this Yeshua, this, that Jesus said he's going to overthrow this place. Well, what did Jesus actually say? What Jesus actually said was, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the apostles tell us he was talking about his own body. He was saying, destroy this temple. He was standing in the temple when he said it. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up in three days. He wasn't saying, I'm going to destroy this temple and raise it back in three days. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Then later he did tell his disciples that one day this temple will be destroyed, which had happened in 70 AD, but he never said he was gonna destroy it. You see, that's how this works. When, when you're thinking only emotionally because you're so invested in something, you can't hear the words that are actually being said you hear the words and interpret it in the totally opposite of what it was meant to be. And then they said that he was also going to change the institutes that that was given to us through Moses. You know why they would say that? Remember now who's talking. These people that are emotionally and physically invested in this new faith of what we understand as rabbinical Judaism. 
So they've adopted all the laws and practices, even circumcision, the whole nine yards. You got to wash your hand a certain way, say these certain prayers before you eat, all kinds of stuff, all those rabbinical rules. <clears throat> you see, if you, according to <clears throat> the rabbis, even to this day, uh, what the rabbis say and rule or make as a rule, it's called halakha, it's a, it just means the way you walk it out. In other words, it's a, it becomes a law, a religious law, that this is how you walk out your faith. Their attitude is that is just as solid as if Moses himself said it. It goes beyond that. Even if the ruling they come up with contradicts what's written in your Bible in the Torah, that supersedes it. Because God has given them the authority to do so. <clears throat> and they take one verse, once again, <clears throat> out, of, out of context where God tells them, if you have a dispute among you, you take it to the judges and the rulers among you, you take it to them, and whatever they tell you, that's what you do. You don't veer to the right or left. You do exactly what they say. They take that part of that statement. We have the rule we have the authority from God. You have to do what we say, period. So when they say, <clears throat> he's going to change the institutions given to us through Moses, they're including in that statement all those rabbinical laws. And Jesus said, well, you know what? You have a fine way of, of, uh, of nullifying the very word of God by your rules, and I can show you, I don't even have it written down in my notes, but I can show you in one place where he says the exact opposite of what they're claiming. He says, in Matthew 23, he says, the, the rabbis sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, do and observe everything they tell you. That command is emphatic. And it says in there in Matthew 23 that he's talking to the whole crowd. He's not talking to just his 12 Jewish apostles. But then the rest of that whole chapter, he is blasting the tar out of the rabbis. But don't do as they do because they say and they don't practice. They're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. They're a bunch of brood of vipers. They're a bunch of dead men's bones. It goes on and on. I mean, he just blast them over and over and over. You cross the country to get a convert, then you make them twice the son of hell that you are. It goes on and on and on, just blasting them. What's he saying constantly? When it comes to Moses, when it comes to the word of God, do it. When it comes to this rabbinical stuff, you don't have to do all that dumb junk. You don't have to follow their man-made religion. Just do what I tell you to do. When they're teaching on Moses, do it. But all their other stuff, no. Don't follow them. Don't follow all those dumb rules. Jesus taught against and fought against, if you will, 
man-made religion, I don't care who it is, man-made religion, and he was trying to bring us into a relationship with him and the purity of the very word of God. But when you're sold out to your man-made religion, whatever it is, you can't hear truth. When it hits you in the face. The Jews do it today. Christians do it today. Muslims do it today. You know what we do? We get so caught up in thinking that if I do these things, then God will bless me and maybe even bring me salvation. That's what the Jews were believing and do believe. That if we live a good, righteous life according to the word of God, and that means to them the teaching of the rabbis, we just follow what the rabbis say, just do what the rabbis say. Just, I mean, just do what the rabbis say. Then we'll find ourselves in a good standing with God, and you know, maybe we'll you know, get into paradise. Christians are going to fill churches up to the brim tomorrow just listening to the pastor, just do what the pastor says, live a good Christian life, and then you know, I hope to get in someday. I've had people tell me that. I've had Christians tell me that. I'm not guessing on this stuff, folks. I'm just telling you. And you know, the, the, more, the, the Muslims, they, they, they're living the exact same way. If I do these things, then Allah will be nice and kind to me and blah, 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 blah. Jesus came here to do away with all man-made religion. That was a fact. And the way that he did it was he died on the cross and rose three days later. But when you're so emotionally charged, you can't even hear the truth when someone's sharing it. And you know what's fascinating about this whole chapter? It's the last verse. With all of this stuff going on, you've got the first debate among the Hellenists and the Jewish people in the congregation, and they're like, look, it's not about us. Yeah, okay. something was wrong, obviously. People's... They got offended, whether we meant to or not. I don't think people were planning on shunning these Hellenist widows. I think it just leaked out of them. Just like we'll see it later in Peter's own life, where he, he got seduced into this uh, mindset of these people that were following Jesus but saying you have to convert to Judaism or you can't get saved. So that was also within the early church, if you will, these early believers. And Peter gets sucked into that. I think they just get, they, it just leaks out of them. And in the midst of all that, then it goes to Peter, uh, Stephen. He's out there preaching and teaching and he's doing these miracles. <clears throat> and now you've got the same type situation, except these are people saying, this is Stephen. They don't go after the other apostles. They go after Stephen. Why would they go after Stephen? Because he's a traitor. I invested in this. Holy cow, you're, one, you're, you, you're from my house. What? what? And now you're telling me that all that stuff doesn't really matter? They couldn't hear him say, 
What matters is what it says in the Old Testament, not what the rabbis are saying, and that God wants to dwell in us more than in this place right here. All that's a fact. And so they couldn't hear. So none of that was really true, and it was false witnesses. Verse 15, it says, and all who sat in the council. So who would that include? We'll see here. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says it's the high priest. All of them. So the high priest, all the elders, the scribes, Pharisees, everybody that's in there, they look at Stephen. They look steadily at him and saw his face was like the face of an angel, a heavenly messenger. Up to this point, Stephen hasn't even said anything officially. He's just standing there. All this stuff going on. Now we have to remember, what was it about Stephen that had him appointed to the position that he was given? He was known for his faith and filling of the Holy Spirit, being so sold out to God. That's why he was popular. That's why he gets, if you will, elected and appointed to be one of these first deacons. I believe that's why he was out there and miracles were following this guy. And that's why they look at him And what that is, is the glory of God literally resting on his face. When Moses would go in and see God in the tabernacle, and he would come out, the Shekinah glory of God was on him so heavily that when people saw him, it scared them, and they made him wear a veil over his face like women wear today. They literally said, you got to cover that up. You're scaring me. It's, I, I can't even look at you. <clears throat> They're looking at Stephen, who hasn't said a word. He's not trying to defend himself. Even when they ask him, he doesn't try to defend himself. What he does is he starts preaching the gospel. We'll get to that in the next chapter. What I want you to see here is that in the midst of all this stuff, the accusations hurled at this man for doing what was right, hasn't said anything, but God puts his glory on his face so that everybody in the room look at him and and they're going, whoa, what? Now keep, keep in mind, these are the same men that bring in Peter and John, but they're afraid to bring them in by force so they don't get stoned by the crowds because the thousands and thousands of people that are getting healed and getting saved. And now we just read, what? That when the, the fellowship was in unity, even a lot, many of the priests themselves were becoming believers in Yeshua. These are the same people It's even possible 
that while Luke knows this is true, it is possible, we don't know, but it is possible that some true believers in Yeshua who are priests are there. Because they're priests. And it says that there was a lot of them. There could have been at least one or two or three that were true believers in Yeshua, and they're looking at Stephen. They had just elected him, if you will, as one of the first deacons, and now he's on trial for doing what was right and preaching the gospel. So Luke is telling us that they're looking at him, and he's got the face like the face of an angel. <clears throat> Folks, here's, I th- here's what I think a lesson, something we can take away from this. All of us go through tough times. <clears throat> um, sometimes we're accused of doing things uh, and what we did was the right thing. Um, for a lot of us here in this fellowship, we've come to understand some really deep, phenomenal um, yeah, earth-shattering, if you will, truths from the very Word of God. You know, when you start to understand that the Torah is still applicable, but you don't do it to get saved. All that, all that stuff that we've been studying and learning. Uh, and, you know, then you go and you try to share it with one of your loved ones, and they look at you like, oh, you're part of that Internet cult, right? Some of them would even want to come and minister to you and try to, you know, get you fixed. And, you know, you know we, need to, we need to get you delivered and... We need to have an intervention, you know, and they get worried about you. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. We're sitting there going, okay, we haven't denied our faith. We haven't denied that Jesus is the Son of God. We haven't denied that he died and rose again three days later. We just know what day it was. (laughs) You know, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He was there at creation. He's the speaking agent at creation. He was out at Mount Sinai. The whole Old Testament talks about Jesus. The whole New Testament is the fulfillment of why he came. We haven't denied any of that. So how have I denied my faith? Um. And they can't hear it. What we need to be is not so much trying to prove our point as much as just sold out to God and just trust in God, be filled with the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And let God do what He's going to do. I'll go ahead and cut to the chase, though. Stephen's about to die. But when he dies, he sees Jesus standing not seated. We don't have any record of Stephen planting mega churches, doing, you know, these elaborate ministries and stuff. All it tells us is that he was doing signs and wonders among the people. Everybody was impressed, like, okay. And evidently his ministry was pretty short-lived. But when Stephen is dying and being stoned, And Paul, who at this time is called Saul, is there standing giving hearty approval of them killing him with stones, who becomes the Apostle Paul, who is haunted by this scene the rest of his life. And and I believe was one of the things that compelled Paul to be what Paul was. 
And he ends up saying, I don't know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I was the chief of all sinners. Sometimes God has to take somebody that was just so broken, so lost, that there's no pride in them, so that he can do something with us. <clears throat> My point is, God knew all of this was going to happen. He knew all of this was going to happen with Stephen. Stephen was incredibly successful. And the reason why he was successful is he was successful at his faith in God and being filled with the Spirit of God and totally surrendered over to God for whatever was God's will for his life. And he's going to be admitting that while stones are hitting him in the head. Wow. That's faith and that's success. I'm not as good as Stephen sometimes, but I'm working on it. I imagine there's at least one or two in the room that could agree, that could uh, relate to that and say, I'm, I'm not as good as Stephen, but I'm trying. Uh, <clears throat> and so I guess there's still a little bit of Egypt in me that God's still trying to get out of me. And uh, I just go, well, hallelujah, he's not through with me yet. And uh, we just keep going forward. I do know this. God loves you so much. Jesus loves you, us so much. Uh, he's given us entrance into his kingdom. He's given us a place at the throne, at the table. He's paved the way for everything. I think our only problem is us. The more we can get out of the way, the more he can do through us if we would just get out of the way and just trust him and just keep moving forward. Amen.